0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome back to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We're back to discuss part two of building a strong foundation discovery, and a product liability case. So so then back to our list, were, were there external design consultants? You know, did they design it? Did they bring somebody else in? Similar models or components? And this is, I'll tell you why this is important. Uh, uh, let me Go,
2: jump in, again. John. Also, I mean, this is kind of an external source that that is involved in the design and development. And we talked about this in great detail. But make sure you ask about all industry and government standards consulted, considered, or relied upon in the design of the component and all related documents. And then similar models.
1: The thing with the similar models is at some point, you're going to be arguing about whether or not a, a, a prior incident or another incident comes into evidence. You need to have it be substantially similar, meaning, you know, it, the, with the respect in- to the defect, defect exactly right. As I was going to say it, it's it's the way I look thing you're at it. The are going is,
2: to get met with is objection. It's a different model. Right. And well, we need to do discovery on whether this particular aspect of the design is the same across models.
1: Right. And so that, that's why it's so important to get information about other models, because you may have a bunch of other incidents that that occurred with a different model, but not your model. And really, when you say substantially similar, you're talking about whether or not the the defect the same defect caused the injury so it's as simple as it. i've had car cases where you know the only thing different in the in the other model car was the color you know and, <laughs> and they've objected you know to it so that's why it's important again to find out what other models do you have out there and and how are they different how are they different and it may help you formulate how
2: you want to allege your theory of that defect to incorporate Making incidents with other models relevant.
1: Another big thing are are ch- design changes. You know, in the subsequent models, as you as you follow yeah. through, you know, what were the changes and why? And and were these changes made? You know, were the, they add safety devices? You know, that they didn't have before. And then the question comes: Okay, well, when did you first know about this design or this safety device? When was it? It was it implemented on other models, or or better yet, was it implemented in other countries? you know we have cases where you know the the product is sold around the world and you know they may have more advanced safety devices in other countries because the countries you know regulations require that yeah. they are not required here so they don't they don't implement them here
2: well, one thing about design changes and a lot of this always comes back to substantial similarity in other incidents uh, both sides know how important other incidents are and whether they're coming into evidence one with respect to design changes You may have a lot of incidents you think are similar in a prior model or a related model, and then your model is new. So you don't have pre-existing incidents before your manufacture date. So you're trying to get the ones in from the other model that pre-existed. And one problem I've run up against is they say, well, no, we changed this aspect of the design for this model when we made the 2013 year of this model. And that aspect of the design is a big change, and it was to address this, so it's not substantially similar, which is why it's so important to do discovery about other models because you, you may find out, well, wait a minute, you were having the same types of incidents for this different model, and you didn't make that design change for that model to address what you knew was a safety issue. Certainly, if you were making the design change on this model to address that, It would have been incumbent upon you for safety reasons to do it on the other model too. So you really just have to dig into design changes, not just on your particular model and year. You, You need to really get into related models. The reasons for design changes, the role of each individual or entity in the design process, all considerations that affect the design process. There's lots of different ways to ask all these questions, but alternative designs, things like that. And as part of that, because you're going to be getting into substantial similarity in which models or related models you may be able to get into, you have to make sure, and we do this early in in the corporate rep, make sure you understand the date each model or product was introduced, the date it was stopped being produced and offered for sale, the reason each was introduced or discontinued, everybody involved in those decisions, any changes amongst them.
1: Another good source of information about a product or patents yeah if you if you look up the patent related to your product you'll you'll see all kinds of helpful information, design changes, alternative designs, you know licensing agreements, patent applications as well as the patent itself, you know provide a lot of information drawings purposes you know and all you know you might also get information in the patent helping you with one of the defenses. For instance, use, you know, foreseeable use or mm-hmm. misuse of the product. We've been talking a lot about design and I think most of the product cases are design cases. Most of them are. A Ma- manufacturing case where, you know, it was, it was designed, but it wasn't, you know, manufactured in accordance with the design. They didn't put a, you know, a, a weld in properly or, you know, a bolt was missing or something like that. Didn't apply enough glue to, th- to that a, they were supposed grip, to, right? to a hand grip or something uh, like Those that. are, those occur less frequently. And 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 as, you know, just by their nature they do, because it's it's a a mistake in the making or the manufacturing or putting together a bad product mm-hmm. at that time, whereas the design is it's just a bad product. And
2: you really need to pursue both, first of all, to keep your options open as you do discovery, because you know, you may figure out you need to be alleging go forward on both or one as opposed to another. But it's much better in my experience for a defendant to say, this is a one-off manufacturing mistake, then this is just a bad product. So you need to be doing as much discovery as you can anticipating that, right? Because they may come in later and go, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't a design issue. This is just something that happens one-off once somebody made a mistake in the manufacturing process. So you need to be anticipating that and trying to cut it off or getting as much information about that as you can before they come in at the end and try to claim that, which has happened to me a, like a number of times. So you need to know how often that has happened. Like, well, if, it's, if it is a manufacturing problem that happens all of the time, then maybe that's process. actually a process right. and a design process. problem. Right. So get into any individuals or entities involved in the assembling and manufacturing process, any manufacturing or process specifications, uh, all the documents related to those kinds of things. Production records, quality control sheets, and testing sheets that exist for the date your product came off the line, inspection reports, all of those kinds
1: of things. And we we talked about testing at, at length earlier, you know, and again, there, there's testing at different stages yeah you know pre-design post-design pre-design post-design you know and actually you know what are the tests is the testing meaningful i guess is is what i would say
2: did they did they run the car into a sled 50 times or did they just do computer simulated testing once and never for the actual type of circumstance that happened in this case
1: we always ask for every warning on the product whether it's on the package and the instruction the manual on you know on the product itself i like that Talk about it as identify and describe any and all warnings that accompanied the product at the time of its sale. Government regulations and standards, and the di- let's we'll talk about the difference. Just generally, you know, a regulation, as everybody knows, is a law. It has to be followed. If it's not followed, it's it's you've got a negligence per se case. You know, you can't sell the product or shouldn't be able to sell the product without complying with the regulation. You know, standards on the other hand are more like best practices, you know, of the industry guidelines where it's, it's you know, can certainly support a negligence claim, but it doesn't have the same effect as as a regulation. And that's something that we we always ask the defendant, you know, it's your product, it's your industry, what regulations are out there that relate to this product and identify them, you know, yeah. what are they, how do they relate? Then what I'll do is I'll spend some time on that. And then the next, you know, issue is, you know, apart from regulations, what are there any standards? Are there industry standards, guidelines that relate to this product? If you have a warning claim itself, you know, maybe there's a warning on the product and it's not clear, it's not sufficient. You know, you want to look at things like the color, the size, the location, the purpose of each warning. Again, people, ask for people. You want names, documents and names. Ask for the people who who made the decisions who drafted this warning who decided that the you know the, the, this would be on it versus this and if with respect to regulations that applies too
2: find out the defendant's participation in the development of any regulations or industry standards or lobbying efforts with respect to regulations and any of the defendant's personnel responsible for compliance with regulations or industry standards. What if you want to get ahead of the game and you you are handling a product you haven't handled before? I assume your expert will be a good source of some of this information. But yeah. is, are there other ways for you to figure out what the standards are or what the regulations are? I mean, if you spend enough time on the internet, you, you probably will will
1: find things. Uh, uh, but I think your expert's probably the best place to start because you got somebody who's familiar with with the industry, but. You know, the defendants certainly know what what standards and what, you know, regulations apply. I try to get admissions from the defendant about
2: regulations or standards applying before they get to my expert who's relying on them. And then they claim, oh, those don't apply.
1: Yeah. And I think the regulations are pretty fairly clear cut. A lot of actually a lot of times in product cases, the, you know, the defendants will argue that because they complied with all of the, you know, government or federal regulations, you know, they're the product's perfect and they can't be sued. And, you know, nine times out of 10 when they're doing that, no, there's not even a regulation related to the specific issue, you know, the specific item at issue in the case. And another thing, instructions, not just warnings, but instructions. And the two things, instructions and warnings, both, they're very helpful on this issue of whether, you know, foreseeable misuse. Was the product being, was it being misused at all? And if it was being misused, was it foreseeable misuse? And so you're and, talking about instructions at the time of sale. Yes, Maybe the product manual yep. or anything else included yes. in the in the product packaging. Yes. Instructions, you know, where they'll they'll tell you in the instructions, the warnings, do it this way, not that way. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if your client has is doing it that way, not this way, and, and they're and they're warning about it, certainly they were aware that they could, it could that was yeah. a foreseeable use of the product. I don't right. like saying foreseeable misuse. It's either a foreseeable use or not. Right. And, right. And you know, if it's foreseeable, the way it was being used, they're you know they're good for it. What about warranties? I we ask for them. I mean, identify
2: and describe all warranties for the product at issue at the time of sale, how it was conveyed, any regulations, standards, guidelines about warranties. Persons involved in the creation, describe the claims process and procedure, warranty claims files. I mean,
1: it's a good source to try to find other incidents. Another great source. Uh, of discovery in a product case is the marketing. And, you know, there's usually a disconnect between the, you know, between the designing and the marketing. I'll give you an example. You know, we've handled some some ATV cases. And, you know, they've got warnings on them, you know, if you're not like 16 years old, don't drive it, period. And, you know, you go on their website and they've got, you know, 12 year olds flying all over the they they actually sell, you know, ATVs for 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 little kids, you know, the the little little models. And yet, you know, they've got in the warning, don't, you know. Nobody under 16. Nobody under 16. Look at the marketing and compare the marketing to what the, you know, what, what, the, what they're saying in the lawsuit, yeah. right? What, what their position is you in the lawsuit. Try to get marketing studies they did or marketing focus groups they did.
2: What their target audience was is usually going to be included in those marketing materials.
1: You look at the, what they're putting out there, you know, what, how they're holding themselves out to the public, how they're describing their product what about recalls one of the first things
2: i do when i get a potential product case in is look up to see if there's any related recalls i mean that may become the hardier it's much more difficult so, Tim, to defend about a this? case okay. with it has been well, recalled
1: well what about this let's say you there's a recall but the recall didn't reach your client or better yet let, let's say it did and they didn't do anything about it what do you do then
2: um are you talking about a potential negligent recall claim? Some jurisdictions yeah. allow that, some don't.
1: Well, let's talk about the situation where there was a recall, but the recall wasn't, did, didn't reach your, your client. Yeah. Okay, they, they didn't know anything about it, and they're still driving a defective vehicle or a, you know, a, a defective aid, whatever it is.
2: Um, that is irrelevant to the claim, frankly. As, How as, so? it, Because the question is whether the product was defective and unreasonably dangerous and whether that caused or contributed to cause my client's injury. And usually in strict liability claims, there's only designated certain ways that your client can be comparatively at fault, right? And they would have to like know of the danger and undertake the risk a lot of times. And if they didn't know of the danger, even if it's like their fault for not knowing about it, or there's some negligence for not knowing about it, I don't think that it's relevant to the case. Would it impact the negligence claim against the manufacturer? It could, and that could make a dis- help you make a decision about what claims you're going to submit to the jury.
1: Every time I've had a, a recall case, you know, it-, it That a, issue a certain, almost right, always comes yeah, up. Yeah, It comes up, but it, it almost always makes your case, you know, stronger. But what, what, I, what I do is, you know, if you have a, a product that has been recalled, you know, I think the last thing in the world you want to sit on your, your your rear end and say, okay, my case is done. They recalled it. They're going to admit it was defective. I've had recall cases you know, where they, they, well, they won't admit anything. Well, and it, well, even if they do, if they recall that product, I can guarantee you that is a big deal, recalling a product. Oh, yeah. They had to have dozens or tons. hundreds, tons of prior claims, and, then, and there will be correspondence internally, you know, debating, right, yeah. of, how bad does it need to get? How many people do we need to let get hurt? So anytime you have a a product that was recalled, your your focus, like a laser beam focus, needs to be on this issue of the recall. In other words, and related recalls of their other models. Right, and and the the issue is a little more specifically. The issue is why did you recall it? This is how that I would yeah. get the framework of discovery related to the recall. Number one, tell me why you recalled it. Okay, what problem or, or what defect? danger? Okay, what danger? And then secondly, the date w- you when you knew about that, when did you first know about that, and then how often had this happened or did you, did you allow it to happen before you actually, you know, did something? And who was involved in that decision-making? Right, right, right. So, again, it's— The manner
2: in which it was instituted, because there's manners in which you can send out notice of a recall or a fix to the recall, that it impacts the cost of instituting the recall, whether they give you—sometimes it's uh, bring this in and we'll give you a whole new product. And sometimes it's just warning you about it. Sometimes it's, here's a repair kit That's now Mm. it's your responsibility to fix it. And so you can get into the cost-benefit analysis they had in doing that and whether it, it was a sufficient manner of resolving it. But the manner in which the recall was instituted, the manner in which notice of the recall was disseminated to distributors, sellers, customers, number of products recalled, number actually returned, and all documents related to it. You need to go... To the consumer product safety commission whatever
1: other agency usually is involved in that recall to get their file tim what would you say the average number of documents in in our typical product case what would you say the average number of documents there are that are that are produced in in a case
2: we've handled product cases where it's just there's just not as many out there and you're still dealing with thousands of pages of documents but that's the floor most of the time it's hundreds of thousands of pages of documents and i mean sometimes it's in the millions And so you really need to
1: be on top of reviewing them and organizing them in a fashion so it becomes useful. So another issue that comes up quite a bit in in the cases that we handle in the product cases, you know, as we talked about government regulations, okay? And and again, the government regulations are minimum standards. You got to remember that. It's actually in the preamble of the standards themselves, meaning that if you don't comply with the standards, you can't even sell the product. It's an illegal product. And what you'll find in in most industries is there are trade groups, and, and these trade groups will actually lobby very, very heavily Against any type of you know in improvement of the of the regulation, and you can see that in the car industry, you can see that in the trucking industry. I've seen it in multiple industries. Or they or they lobby
2: for regulations on different industries to try to pass the buck. Multi-piece wheels being a
1: perfect example. Yeah, and and so what you need to do in discovery is you need to actually look into what what lobbying efforts they've had, what their position has been on 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 certain regulations. That's a big part of our discovery a lot of times in these cases because what they'll do is you know they fight for decades to water down these federal safety standards and then once they get the you know the very watered down version passed you know they'll use it as a shield like yeah. well we, we we comply with we the regulations with regulation. we can't be sued right. can't for product be sued. And, you, and obviously that's not the case you know they can but the real question is what what is that standard well, i hear this in every every automotive product case i have yeah. they'll stand up and say we we passed every single federal motor vehicle safety standard that exists. We passed all the government standards, and you know there was a good response to that. Is well, how, how many all the cars that you've had recalls on, they've all passed them too, right? Right. And and again, that's why the recall itself is important. Whether they have recalled it, you know the Ford Pinto, you know the the, the side mounted you know GM gas tank cases, you know I, mean, I think almost always the discovery goes well beyond you know, just the actual design process. It's got to get, get into, you know, post-sale stuff, you know, how, how the product and did, did out in the public.
2: And with, when there's a recall or even a consideration of a recall that didn't happen or there are regulations that have been created, there are investigative governmental body that probably has stuff you'll find out that it was the defendant's documents and they didn't give it to you in discovery. So make sure you go make FOIA requests and do it early because it takes a long time to get government documents from the federal government. It may take 18 months to get correspondence, communications, the entire investigative files from any regulatory agency or investigative body related to. And then one of the last topics we wanna talk about with respect to building the foundation of your case through discovery in a product case is, we've talked about this in detail, but. Make sure you ask for other incidents, prior incidents, complaints, lawsuits in every which way possible that you could possibly ask for it to cover whether anything is out there. You want them to identify each alleged incident of defect or product failure, depending on what happened. Anytime there was a claim or complaint to you made of, of a roof, roof crush in a. Whatever type of vehicle, just make sure you've covered your bases any prior lawsuits, any prior incidents, any prior complaints, any prior warranty claims, and then information about those. The date, what's claimed to have occurred, identity of person involved, nature of injuries, identity of witnesses, date they received notice of it, any investigation they did into it. If it's a lawsuit, get the name of the lawsuit, the jurisdiction. So you can look it up, try to call the other lawyer and yeah, see if they that's have a in great the file. Point because
1: it's not just that these are going to be helpful in improving notice. The fact that another case has already been pending, depositions have been taken, written discovery has been exchanged—that's just a, a, a ton of great information.
2: You may be able to, if it's a sharing protective order, go get all the documents from that other lawyer, look up all the pleadings, discovery responses, depositions, expert and expert reports, but. Certainly talk to the other lawyer. Depending on the details of your case, there may be other categories of things you, that don't fall into these general categories. So give, give thought to exactly what your case is about. But for all of these things, you're trying to find any documents you can about anything related to all these topics. But you also wanna find out if, if you're not getting documents about something, you wanna make sure you understand why. Make sure you're able to confirm if it's because they do not and never existed, or if they got rid of them. So I always, always ask both in a request for production and as a corporate rep topic to authenticate all documents produced, confirm all documents have been produced that are responsive to the plaintiff's discovery request, and identify any of defendant's document retention and destruction policies, including for OSI's claims files and, and all the types, testing investigations, all the types of things we're doing. So. You know if they actually throw it all out after five years, and that's why you don't have anything or whether it's because it never existed.
1: Yeah, what we've covered really is, you know, building a strong foundation in your product case through discovery. And as we've mentioned multiple times, I think these are these more so than almost any other case are, you know, so discovery intensive. And and really, it's the documents. You want people's names, but, you know, really nothing is done during the course of a product's life that isn't well-documented. Or should be. Right, or should be. There's there's a financial incentive, cost is an issue in every aspect of the design, the testing, whether to test or not test. So, you know, it really begins and ends with with discovery, most importantly, documents. And I think, you know, having, having a well-planned out game plan in the beginning and being very comprehensive making sure that you get everything that's out there, you know, not just asking for it, but actually following up and making sure that you get it. I mean, it's one thing drafting all of this wonderful... Call up recovery. the
2: objections. Exactly. Right, right, <laughs> write your discovery deficiency uh, letters. Have the conference you need to have. Go go file motions to compel. And,
1: you know, if it's if it's something... Look at the privilege yeah. log. If they didn't do one, make them do one. I, I think also, you know, look at the product and it, it just, you, you're going to have a, a if it's happened dozens of times before, and you can just look at the design a lot of times, yeah, it's just it's just not a good idea, especially if there's a simple solution to it that they knew about. And then the question becomes, well, why why didn't you do it? How
2: do you ride herd over all this information and make sure you did get the thing or you're still waiting for
1: it? do you Do you just do it paper and pen or do you have a spreadsheet or how do you, how do you make sure that they are doing everything that they're supposed to? Well, I think what what we do is we get all the documents, review them. We will index the documents. And what happens, Eric, when you look at the documents and you dig into them, they're going to lead you to other documents. And you know, what I try to do is I try to categorize them by subject matter. And then I'll have another set maybe in chronological order. So you can sort of put the whole story together of, of, you know, what was going on. Initially, I do it by category, for instance, testing, you know, design. And then what I'll do is, as we get deeper into the case, is I will lay out the key documents in, in, a, in a chronological order, and it will really, the story just comes to, to, to light. You can see, let's see, they failed this test, and then they failed another one, and then they quit doing this one, and they, sw- you know, they changed the, the, the type of testing that they were doing or something like that.
2: And a lot of times, Eric, this is, we'll keep a rolling to-do memo that we keep saved, so we have all the stuff we want to try to get initially and as we find out more through discovery responses and through depots about what other documents may exist that we don't have or ones we asked for that we still don't have we'll keep those on as part of our rolling like to do memo that we keep which may have people we want to depose or other things we want to do but also discovery to continue to follow up on documents to get and as we get them we'll check them off of that list and as we find out about other ones we'll add them to the list so there's one I try to keep one place I can go back to rather than a bunch of memos to go back to and keep track of all the motions. One to do memo that we just continuously update. And we have, I mean, for big product cases, we have, you know, case review meetings where all of us involved sit and talk about, okay, what have we talked about we needed to do? What have we done to get it done? If we haven't make a plan for how we're going to get it and all look at that to do memo together to make sure everything's on it that needs to be.
1: And we haven't really talked about, you know, responding to objections and all of that, but it's very time consuming, but it's, it's it's critical. It's important. Having somebody answer a request for documents or an interrogatory by saying we object, but subject to that, we're gonna decide what we wanna give you. You know, that's that's ridiculous. You know, I've had I've had that happen to me very most, early Most on, courts you know. don't tolerate that. You have to take that up. Right, you, you gotta take it up. I mean, as sub- getting something subject to or better yet, you know what? What happens even more is, you know, we're we're still looking sort of a response that,
2: and then you never follow up about
1: it, or or we're you know we're still, you know, investigation continues or something like that, and you're like, well, okay, well, investigation needs to end, you know, figure it out, get it, get a time deadline for it. It ain't easy, and you really need to be very diligent and on top of it, and continue to to do do whatever you need to do to get to get what's there, you know, to either. Either, you know, note without objection, either have them say, You got everything, there's nothing else on this subject, and that's it. That's really that's that's worth the point you need to get to. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, this has been this has been a continued discussion about product liability cases. We discussed in prior sessions the anatomy of a product liability suit, and this was focused these sessions were focused on building your case through discovery. And this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim
1: Cronin. I'm Eric Feast. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time.
0: The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.